Good morning. Spring is coming. I know because I listened to George Budd's sermon last week, and he promised us that spring was coming. So he seems like a very trustworthy guy, so I believe him. And uh, so it's good to be back, and I uh, had a little week off and a little break and spent some family time and did a little tour around Ontario, back down to Guelph and back again. It was good time, good rest. But it's good to be back, good to be back into First Corinthians and uh, this series. Uh, just as a little sort of update, um, we're, we're just about done here. Uh, I think there's one more left in the series that I want to do, maybe two. And that's going to bring us up to Easter, and then from Easter we go into Missions Week. So between Easter and Mission Week, we get a little bit of a break from 1 Corinthians, which actually I'm kind of relieved of, because the Apostle Paul is a lot to take in big doses. And uh, so whether we come back to 1 Corinthians immediately after Missions Week, I'm not sure. We may go into something else, a different series, and then come back to 1 Corinthians a little later on. And there's a bit of a natural break at the end of chapter 10, which is where I hope to be uh, in a couple of weeks at the end of chapter 10. But this morning, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 8, and uh, it's a short chapter, so it's the whole thing. And uh, if you turn uh, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 8, I'm just going to read through the whole text ahead of time, uh, keeping in mind that the, the topic here, and preparing ahead of time to understand what the Apostle Paul is talking about here, he's talking about our freedom of conscience, or I've used the term liberty, and what informs our liberty. And as we get into the, the text, you'll see... Uh, And into the letter, you'll see that this is an important topic that we deal with in these foundation stones that Paul is relaying. Let's uh, just open in a word of prayer before we read. Father God, we turn now to your word. We turn to look into your scripture. And uh, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us in this, that uh, these things can be difficult to understand. We can, by our nature, uh, desire to have them say what we want them to say. And we look at them through the lens of our culture and through the lens in the history of our own personal lives, and so uh, we tend to want to lay our personality over your scripture rather than have your scripture stand over us. And so, Father, I would just pray that um, in this case, your scripture, uh, through your Holy Spirit, would um, fall on us and that we would be transformed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 1 Corinthians 8. And I'm sure many of you were just dying to get to this chapter. I mean, it's about time we got close to something relevant to our hearts. All this stuff about unity and all this stuff about marriage and purity. I mean, what does that have to do with anything? Now we're talking about food offered at idols. And I know a lot of you were just burning with getting to this topic. Well, this is your Sunday because we're here. So Paul opens up in responding to the Corinthians. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords... Yet for us there is only one God, the Father, from whom all things are 
from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all the things and through him we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So what are we talking about here, given that we don't typically in our day and age deal with this issue, although more and more it is actually in North America an issue to deal with the reality of meat being offered at idols. And it has been an issue around the world and all through history for most, of, most people, just not us. But we've been trying to understand this letter that Paul is writing to the people in Corinth within their context. And to understand their context, you have to understand is that Corinth knew how to do temples. Temples lined their streets. The Roman culture was saturated with, with temple uh, worship. And that the meat in Corinth or the meat in the Roman Empire in these big cities was often a byproduct of temple worship and of sacrifice. And so there was always these feasts going on and eating going on all the time. It's like when you go into town today. If you were to go into Aurelia or into Barrie or down to Toronto and you were to walk down the street downtown, down the Danforth, you would go after restaurant after restaurant after restaurant, all these great restaurants and people out feasting, right? Or you go to suburbia, you go to the big box mall and you got your Montanas and you got your Chili's and you got your TGI Fridays and you got all your restaurants out there. And when you go out into public, you go out into the city, there's all these people feasting. So they didn't have Montanas, they didn't have Texas Grill, but they had temples. And so in Corinth, when people were out, it was feasting and temples everywhere they went, just like when we go into town. And so... In Corinth, when people were out, this was their restaurant, essentially, that they would engage in these feasts, or if they were to go to the supermarket, they would understand that at the sacrifice at the temples the night before, the meat that was left over would end up being for sale uh, at, the, you know, at the supermarket. And uh, so they knew that where this meat was coming from. And so the Roman cultural, culture was just saturated with this, this temple worship, and it was where you went. It wasn't just something that you could choose to go somewhere else. You couldn't just say, well, I'm going to go to, you know, First Baptist Corinth and not go to the temple, because this is where everybody did their socializing. So it was where the staff parties was. It was, you know, and, and, and you looked weird if you didn't participate, you know, so it was like, I can't go to the staff party, because, you know, you're going to have it at the Temple of Apollos, and, you know, I don't do that anymore. Or, you know, Billy can't go to that birthday party because, you know, that birthday party is going to involve meat and idols and, and good fortune, uh, you know, sacrifices and things. And so, you know, Billy can't go to that birthday party. And it was just part of life that you have to understand this was a pagan culture and it saturated everything. There were literally thousands of temples to thousands of gods. And so it wasn't an easy thing for the Corinthians to extract themselves from the culture around them. Okay? And so... 
they wrote this letter that we don't have. They wrote a letter to Paul asking questions. You know some of this background. And this letter that we're reading, 1 Corinthians, is Paul's answer back to them. And so he's trying to answer this question that they're asking. And basically what the Corinthians were saying was, we have this knowledge, Paul. And this will sound familiar to a few weeks ago when we were talking about purity and, the, and their knowledge of their liberty. The first Corinthians really loved it. They were like, we, you gave us this knowledge. We understand. We're free. We have this knowledge that there's only one God. And we have this knowledge that idols are nothing. And so it's okay for us to eat the meat, right, Paul? Like, it's okay if we go to these parties or send Billy to the birthday party. Or it's okay if we eat. The, like, it's fine. I like steak. I'm pretty sure it's okay. So just... You know, it's okay, right, Paul? Because I don't want to stop eating meat. <laughs> and so they were set free, but they had these questions that they were asking Paul. They're saying, we have this knowledge, and so we can go do this stuff, right? We can eat at these feasts, and we can eat at these altars, and we can eat the meat, no problem, because it means nothing, right? Like, back me up on this, Paul, is basically what they're saying. And so he's writing back to them, and he's writing back to, yes, you have this knowledge. You do have this knowledge, you're right. But that's not the only thing you have. There's more to just the knowledge, and so, the, so what the Apostle Paul has to do here and what we've been doing with these foundation stones is he has to relay the foundation for the church in Corinth and how they understand this foundation stone of liberty. And essentially, so we understand it right from that very first verse, is Paul wants to explain that there is a foundation stone of liberty. You're absolutely right. But that foundation stone is going to be framed up with other things. We remember before they thought, oh, you know, we're free. So that means that we're free to have whatever sex we want, right? Because we're set free. So we have all this sexual freedom. And Paul's like, well, no, there's purity. And then they were asking questions like, well, we're free. So that means we're free from our marriage, right? Or, or we're free to marry. And Paul's like, well, just understand your freedom in terms of divorce and marriage. And then they're like, well, we're free from law. So we don't have to be circumcised and things like that. Like we're free from all these things. This understanding of liberty, Paul has to continually keep framing up and say, yes, liberty. You have knowledge of liberty. We get it. But you have to frame it with love, and you have to frame it with purity. You have to frame your understanding of your knowledge of liberty with these other things so that they line up rightly in the foundation of your faith. And so back to liberty, it's a common theme that Paul's been addressing, all those different things that they feel they're free in to behave however they want. And Paul says, no, there's other things besides just liberty. And so how does Paul go back into this again and address this issue of the freedom that the Corinthians think they have And this idea of knowledge and love and liberty. And he says, So concerning food offered at idols, we know that all things that all of us possess this knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, knowledge, yes, you have knowledge, but it can make you arrogant. It can puff you up. So what is the character of your knowledge? Paul wants to know. Is it a knowledge that lets you just run over people or lets you run wild in the marketplace like a bull in a china shop and lets you just sort of do things your way? Or is there a heart of love behind your knowledge? Is there a heart of love behind what you know your freedom is and your liberty is? Your knowledge and your liberty should not lack love. And so with regard to food at idols, he says, therefore, in verse 4, therefore, as to the eating of food offered at idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. And they're using that knowledge to justify their participation in the public feasts and the idol feasts. And and in chapter 10, Paul is actually, this this section in chapter 8, you'll see is reflected very closely in chapter 10 as Paul deals specifically with that issue of them worshiping out in public at the feasts. But right here, he's just talking about uh, how they are to deal with the meat offered at idols, and he's trying to address this issue of the knowledge. And so first of all, understand that Paul agrees with them. Okay, that Paul is affirming their knowledge. 
Okay, in verse 6, he says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are and from whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things are and whom we exist. And so this is basically bedrock biblical doctrine. This is like foundational. This is cornerstone stuff, and Paul's agreeing with them. He's saying it's critical that you know this truth. It's critical that I affirm it. Paul would never deny it. Knowing that there is one God, one Father, from whom all things are and all things exist, is absolutely true. It absolutely is bedrock foundational truth in the universe and who God is. Everything is from God and everything goes towards us. Everything exists by him and everything exists for him. And by knowing this, the Corinthians knowing this and us knowing this, we don't have to live in fear of ever having to come up with something to offer God, which is to deal with this idol worship, right? You're right. There is one God and everything is made by him, for him. Everything comes from him towards us. This is not a situation where we have to come up with something to offer God because it's all his. And so Paul affirms it. And he says God has everything and he's done everything. In Acts 7, he talks about how Paul, God doesn't need us to build a house for him. He doesn't need us to paint his rec room. Uh, he doesn't need us to move his furniture in. He doesn't need us our gifts. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need anything from us. God is everything and done everything for his glory. And when we go to do something, we have to think about the constraints of what we can do. We think about how much money we have and how much time we have and whether the materials are available and if we're going to do something. And God doesn't do any of that. God is not limited by any of that. He owns it all. He built it all. He constructed it all. And he did it all out of nothing. And that's God. And that's what Paul is affirming. He's saying, you're right, Corinthians. Your knowledge of God is correct. That everything is from God. There is only one God. All these other things are nothing. We have nothing to offer him. You know, as, as Matt Chandler said in the explicit gospel, he said, it's, it's not as if, it's not as if uh, the angels sort of walked up to God in heaven and said, you know, look, God, there's, there's these mountains everywhere, and there's trees, and there's goats, and there's ostriches, and there's rocks, and, you know, we don't have any space to play dodgeball. You've got to get rid of this stuff. And God is like, well, what am I going to do with it? Where am I going to put it? Oh, I know, the universe. You know, and the angels are like, awesome idea, God. What is a universe? And he's like, just watch, I'm going to create it out of nothing. And, you know, and God just speaks the universe into existence and then planets and suns and, you know, oh, we're going to have these things. And everybody just sort of stands back in amazement like we've been singing of the holiness of God, of the greatness of God. And you stand back and you realize you have to get this sort of bedrock foundational truth underneath everything that Paul is talking about is that God is one. He exists and there's no other gods before him and there's nothing we can offer him. Because he did it all, built it all for his glory. And so Paul affirms it. He says, your knowledge is right. There is one God. And all these little idols are not real gods. You're right. That is the right knowledge. But is that knowledge squared up with love? In verse 7, he says, but some, through their formal association with idols, eat food that is really as if it's really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. And when they talk about knowledge or not having knowledge or weakness or strength here, it's not about how intelligent you are or what your IQ is or things like that. It's, it's where you are at in your, and where you've come into the faith from. And so Paul is saying food doesn't matter, but be careful that this right of yours doesn't become a stumbling block to the weak. You have, because of your knowledge, the liberty that you think you have. You're right. They are nothing. But don't let your 
right of yours, this knowledge of yours, this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to others. And here's the key thing, is that the Corinthians, what they did is they went straight from my knowledge, they went from I have knowledge to I have rights. They went straight from their knowledge to their rights, and they skipped over everything in between. And Paul says, you got the knowledge, but you don't just go straight to your rights, because then it puffs up. He says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so this is where we often stumble. It's our right. I'm free to do this. You know, that's, that's the North American culture. And we're not that far removed from the Roman culture. The, the democracy that we enjoy is a form of the republic that the Greeks and the Romans began. And so we live in a democratic republic, essentially. You know, our courts, as we saw a few weeks ago, work essentially the same. The legal system they came up with, we're still using. We're not that far removed from Corinth. Our ethics are based as much on Plato and Aristotle and Socrates as their ethics were. And so in North America, we we have this same lens that we view things through that the Corinthians did. That that we go straight from knowledge to rights. And that applies to our faith too. We learn these things in the gospel and we go straight from what we know to be true to our rights. And we immediately make it about ourselves. And so we're, we're just as guilty as Corinth is in this. And so... And you can understand why we do it because, you know, you're living under sin and you're living under bondage and you hear the good news of the gospel. Paul, the apostle Paul comes into town and he tells the good news and the Corinthians hear the news and they're set free from bondage to sin and they're set free from bondage to idols and they love it and they have this freedom of the knowledge they have and so they put it on a flag and they start waving their freedom around like crazy because they know that they're free and they are celebrating it but they don't realize, it's kind of like our kids up here, they don't realize while they're waving this flag they're whacking their brothers and sisters in the head with it <laughs> and and paul's like yeah you got the right idea you are absolutely right great god is huge god is holy god is awesome you can't offer anything to god wave that flag but hey don't go straight from knowledge to your rights that you feel like i can just wave this flag around and don't anybody dare get in my way because if i'm going to eat the meat at the idol or i'm going to go to the staff party or i'm going to go to this thing down here that i used to go to i'm free i can do it and If you don't believe me, well, look out because my flag's coming. And so Paul is essentially saying to the Corinthians, he's saying, you can't go straight from knowledge to your rights. You can't just take liberty and wave it around and whack everybody in the head with it. You have to take liberty and pair it with love. And understand that this knowledge is a dangerous thing if you misuse it that way. And that's what was going on in Corinth. The Christians were waving their rights around. They're boasting in their knowledge. And they're at the very least unaware of their behavior. And Paul says, be careful that you're not puffed up in this knowledge of the liberty that you have. Because other Christians, they might have a dangerous history with that pagan culture and with idols. And it might be fine that you understand that, but these other people that have come out of that pagan culture and you drag them to a party where people are worshiping at an idol and they're eating meat that's been sacrificed there and they're drinking and there's stuff going on, Paul says you may drag them right back in to the pagan culture they came from and they will be, excuse me, destroyed, he says. He says there's harm done. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. That's a strong word. And it can happen if if we use our liberty and our freedom and our knowledge in that to lead someone back into idolatry or mixing their old life into their new life in Christ. When our freedom encourages another Christian to violate their conscience, we're destroying them. And that's not how our liberty is to be used. And so, 
the foundation that the Corinthians weren't framing the liberty stone with was love for one another and understanding that they can't just charge around, that they have to constrain their liberty for the benefit of the other Christians around them. And so instead of knowledge puffing up, love builds up. And so the knowledge of who God is and our liberty framed by our submission to one another in love so that we're not causing others to stumble or even sin against Christ himself. And Paul deals with this in verse 8. He says, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and we're no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, I was thinking about this. I was thinking, what are the current issues in our culture and time that deal with this? And more and more it is actually food offered at idols. I mean, I love Thai food. And so I go to Viet Thai restaurants wherever I can find them. And pretty much whenever you go into a Viet Thai restaurant, you walk in, what do you see? Whoop, little golden Buddha thing with flowers and a little cup of tea or, you know, shot glass of scotch or whatever it is they feed them. <laughs> but, you know, you see that in the store. And it gets, you sort of take a look at you like, hmm. Okay, so is that going to bother me or is that not going to bother me? Some people it bothers, some people it doesn't. And we can't judge whether it bothers people or not, right? It doesn't bother me because I like Thai food a whole lot. So maybe I'm with the Corinthians and I'm justifying it. <laughs> but, you know, it doesn't bother me that that's there. But, but idol worship is actually more and more coming into our culture, you know, from what we're used to in North America. And you go into a, into a, a little grocery store or whatever, you could find the same thing. You could find idols in the store. And actually think about this. But this isn't typically what we think of. The more common categories that we would think of here is maybe things like drinking alcohol and people having different stances on that. You know, some things, some people like alcohol, people understand that they can drink and not be drunk and they can enjoy a glass of wine along with their meal and they can glorify God in that because everything is from God and everything is for our good. And so they can enjoy alcohol along with their meal, and they can glorify God in that. But then there's other people, because of their conscience or because of their past, that they can't do that. And they know that would be a trap. And we cannot lead them down that path or judge them because of their conscience on the issue of alcohol. But then I thought, what are other things we consume? If we're not talking about literally consuming food here, what are the other things we consume? And what idols might be behind those things that we consume? And so you immediately go to things like movies or television shows that you watch. You know, some Christians would have the freedom to watch certain shows and it wouldn't bother them. And other Christians, it would drag them into a path of, of behavior and destruction that, that they, they want to stay away from. And so they know they have to cut themselves off from that. And there's a difference, right? It could be something as simple as, and it, and it came up when, it, when the series was released, it could be a, some, something like the Harry Potter books, you know, and Christians being divided on it and saying, you know what, I can't... I can't touch the books. I don't want those books in my house. It leads to witchcraft and all of those things. And I understand that. And that's a valid point of view. And then there's other people that say, reading a book about Harry Potter is not really much different than watching a movie about Thor. I mean, it's just a mystical thing. It's good against evil. And it's not a big deal. And that's fine too. You know, it's not... There's no black and white here. There is no law. Paul is saying, I don't have a law for you on this. There is no law. You take away law and liberty and frame it in love. Right? So it's not about the law, it's about love. And how do we deal with these things in love? Paul says, knowledge puffs up, so don't be arrogant about your freedom and say, oh, you're stupid because you don't drink beer. Or, you know, you're crippled because you won't watch a movie about Thor. You know, you don't get arrogant about it and say you should be more free. You humble yourself and you submit yourself. Because it's not about law and it's not about liberty. It's about love. 
and submitting to one another in love. And so don't look for law, but look at each other in love. And love primarily is demonstrated in submission. You know, when, when the individual basically comes down from the height of their individuality, they take their rights flag and their freedom flag and they stop waving that around for a little bit and they humble themselves and they get off of their pedestal and they surrender their self-serving interests and deny themselves, then there's humility and there's a self-sacrifice, a readiness to put other people first, a readiness to live our lives for other people and live our lives in service of their welfare rather than our welfare. What is more important, that I attend that feast or I go to that party or that I encourage and build my brother up? Is it about me and what I have a right to do or is it about the body of Christ and how we edify one another? But Paul walks a fine line here and I want in the closing minutes to talk about the other side of it because Paul does walk a fine line here between here in this text, and also in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If we were to have time to go there, you can read it a bit later. But in chapter 10, he's talking about the exact same thing. And he actually uses the same phrases that he uses earlier from chapter 6 when we were dealing with the purity issue and the knowledge that the Corinthians have. And in 1 Corinthians 10, he talks about the same thing, about how all things are permissible, but not all things are profitable. And all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. And he goes on to say, he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and rose up to play. And therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry, he says in chapter 10. So he says, so he says there, are, there are things that Christians should avoid doing, and they should avoid participating in these public pagan feasts for the sake of the church and their weaker brothers and sisters and for their own spiritual protection. Because he says, I'm not saying that idols are anything, but I'm saying that you're getting involved in something that's spiritually dangerous. That there is demon worship going on there. That there is behavior that is going to suck you in spiritually that you should disengage from. But at the same time, in in chapter 10, just to quickly talk about the, the line that Paul is walking, he then also goes on to say that why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I participate with thankfulness, why am I denounced for that which I give thanks? And so it's really interesting this week studying this text because Paul, like pastors everywhere, are trying to walk this fine line between saying, yeah, you, you should set these things aside for the sake of the church and the sake of yourself, and, 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 but they are nothing, it's true, and, but at the same time, don't let your liberty be captive, held captive by other people. Don't let other people walk around in the church saying, you can't do this. And this is what happens when we run into this, how it usually turns out in the church, is that somebody's doing something that you're not okay with, and so therefore you assume that because you're not okay with it, they can't be okay with it. And so the way we react to this in the church, what usually happens is we go around, we get a petition, and we get everybody to agree with us. Like, you know, Marvel superhero movies are, you know, from Satan, right? And so if you could just sign this petition and agree with me that everything that Marvel superhero movies are about is satanic and everybody who goes to them are the spawn of the devil, then that would be great. (laughs) And so we get these petitions and then we go around, we hammer people with our conscience, you know, because we can't handle something we assume other people can't. And so Paul is walking this fine line and he's saying, submit to one another with love and don't drag other people into, into, into being destroyed because of your freedom. But at the same time, he's speaking to the other people and saying, don't constrain other people's conscience. They're set free. They've been set free from that bondage, and it's not a bondage to them. And so don't constrain them. You can't walk around and say, you know, if I see any flags waving, you know, I'm going to get hit in the eye, and now you've got a lawsuit on your hands. 
You know, you can't do that in church either. You can't look at every flag that's being waved and say, oh, that's hurting me, offending me, you know, put it away. So Paul walks this fine line like every pastor does between the reality that we do have this freedom that we don't impinge on people, but we also have understand that there is this freedom that we don't constrain other people. And Paul walks between these two texts basically right down the line. And he's saying, it's not black and white. I don't have a law for you. It's neither this nor it's this. It's everybody bringing love to the situation, submitting to one another in love. And so we can all let Scripture inform our conscience. In chapter 10, Paul says that Scripture was written for us as an example, that these things were written down for us so that we could learn. And so we should be going to Scripture, and we should be going to other Christians, and always refining our knowledge and our actions to have a more biblical and accurate view. And there are Christians that struggle with their conscience over things they don't need to struggle with. And as they look into Scripture and they get counsel and mentoring from other Christians, they may learn that they're set free from those things. And at the same time, there's Christians who don't struggle with things that they should be struggling with. You know, they're like, oh yeah, I'm free to do this. It's like, no, you're not. You know, you're not free to do that. There are some things that are offside. You never get to a point in your Christian maturity where you say, oh yeah, murder. Murder used to really bother me, but now I kill people and it doesn't really affect my faith. You know, and other Christians say, yeah, I can't murder anymore because it kind of gets in between me and God when I do that. I mean, it's silly, right? I mean, there are things that you can't do. And so there's Christians out there that are doing things that they should have a problem with. And there's Christians out there that aren't doing things that it's not a problem. And so Paul's trying to walk this line. So don't judge others because they're free. You know? And you may know of another Christian who enjoys a certain activity or approaches the world in a certain way, and they've thoughtfully applied their faith and their knowledge to that practice, and they have a clear conscience before God. Then don't assume because you can't handle what they do that they can't handle what they do. That's ultimately between them and God. And so... This passage, and what I'm saying in all of that is that this passage is not meant to be a weapon to be used by the people with knowledge or the people without knowledge. It's not a weapon for me to walk around and smoke cigars and drink scotch and say, I'm free in the Christ, and so you guys just all have to put up with it. I can't use it as a weapon that way. But it's also not a weapon for those people who are offended by those things to say, you can't mention alcohol. Don't you know that there are people who used to be alcoholics? You can never mention wine ever or you're going to cause them to stumble. But you can't use it as a weapon that way either. The point is, this scripture is not used as a weapon by either party. That both submit to one another in love. And so Paul, just amazing as Paul is, walks that line and explains it. And and the whole point is that he says, yeah, you're right, you have liberty. Let me affirm that. God is great, these idols are nothing. You don't owe anything to God, forget the sacrifices. You want to eat meat, eat steak, it's great. You're no better off for eating it. You're no worse off for not eating it. But don't do it in such a way that you're arrogant and causing your brothers and sisters to stumble. And so that's what sits with us. That's where it lands with us. That we should not find our identity in what we do eat or we don't eat. We don't find our identity in what we're free to do or not free to do. We find our identity in Jesus who died to break all of these bondages. And died to bring a whole new family together, made up of many different kinds of people, with many different backgrounds, and who all worship in different ways, but all that want to make allowances for one another to worship God as we each do. And so Paul and the Corinthians, in closing, had the exact same knowledge, right? The Corinthians knew what Paul knew. Paul taught it to them. So the Corinthians had the knowledge, and Paul had the knowledge, but their behavior was so different. 
as we're going to see in chapter 10, or 9. In chapter 9, we'll see how their behavior was different. The behavior of the Corinthians with that knowledge was, I've got my rights, and nobody can stop me from doing whatever, and I don't care if other people are offended. But the behavior of Paul was, you know what, if it would cause my brother to stumble, then I would never eat meat. I'm not sure I could even go that far. You're telling me I can never eat meat? (laughs) I like steak. But the behavior of the Corinthians and Paul were so different, even though the exact same knowledge. And we have that knowledge as well. We have the knowledge of our liberty, but we also have the knowledge of our love for one another. And so we need to be like Paul and be willing to set aside our rights and set down our flag so that others can worship alongside us without stumbling. And at the same time, we have to be careful that we're not trying to get in the way of other people's flags. That when they have freedom and they have liberty, we can celebrate it with them and say, praise God that you're set free and you have that liberty and not constrain them. In short, essentially, the gospel frees us to love others more than we love our rights and our preferences. The gospel frees us to love others more than our own weakness. And we can set aside our right to behave as we choose, and we can also set aside our right to constrain how others behave. Basically, let's not despise one another because they have a different knowledge than us. Let's not despise one another and be busy writing new laws to constrain the freedom of others or be busy writing new laws to push freedoms on others that they can't handle yet. Let's align our liberty and our law behind love. Let's pray. Father God, we just give you thanks for your word, and it's a lot to digest, pun intended. And we do need to just let your word sit in our hearts and in our minds and let your Holy Spirit work it into our brains because we come to a scripture with our own preconceived notions and we come to practices in the culture with our own preconceived notions and they all need to be informed by you. Father God, I give you thanks for the Apostle Paul. I give you thanks for your word that you teach us in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.